Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is Episode 5 of The Lawyerist Podcast, a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. My favorite podcast app, by the way, is Overcast on iOS, and I think that's yours too. Yeah. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, also known as Call Ruby. You can sign up for a free 14-day trial at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will even waive the setup fee if you decide to become a customer. So I started something this morning that I think you might be interested in, um, since you care a lot about writing, not just legal writing, but you like to, you consider yourself a writer. Um, so I learned about this practice uh from brian koppelman and you and i talk a lot about brian koppelman he has a podcast called the moment that's one of my favorite podcasts he has a podcast Uh, that you like and i try to like i love i've tried to convince you to love it so far (laughs) yeah um so brian koppelman is a former lawyer turned music executive turned screenwriter and now has one of the i don't know top 25 or 50 podcasts um, where he interviews a variety of writers and comedians and business people about writing and the creative process. Um, I find it fascinating, even it, though it is an it's irrelevant to my life. Yeah, but it is an objectively good podcast, and I just have a hard time getting into it sometimes. But sometimes it's excellent, and I can't put it down. Yeah, and he's brilliant whether or not it is relevant to your life. Yeah. Um, so one of his favorite practices as a professional writer is something called Morning Pages, um, which is an idea from this woman who does a lot of kind of new agey um, stuff about writing and creativity. It's a, Her name's Julia Cameron. She wrote a book called The Artist's Way, which had a spinoff called Morning Pages. We can link to these books if you're interested in them. You do not need them, though, to adopt or at least test this practice. The idea is of morning pages is that each day when you wake up, you freehand three pages of whatever your brain wants to put onto paper to start your day, to clear your head, to start your day with writing. Um, and a bunch of people I know, like, and trust swear by it. So I started it this morning. I have no insight into what it will mean for my life, but I'm going to try it. I think you, Sam, should give it a shot. That's interesting. I, I think I probably will give it a shot because I am a neurotic writer and I like tricks and things, even though none of them seem to work for me. So I'll probably try it and it may not work, but I'll, I like the idea. Yeah. And the idea is not to write the first three pages of your first project of the day. The day is to clear your, I mean, it's essentially kind of a meditative creative process of clearing your head of junk through writing, not getting the first 750 words of your first post done. Yeah, no, I like that. That's a that seems like a good idea. I'm going to I'm going to check it out and learn about it and it seems like the kind of thing that I'm probably going to try for 2 or 3 days before I figure out if it works or not and probably run with until it doesn't. That's what I've got. Awesome. I that's 
That's compelling. I, I don't know how useful that is for lawyers who aren't necessarily writers, but if you are trying to maintain a blog, maybe that's a good way to connect. Well, they sure as shit have a bunch of stuff going on in their head every morning, and if well, nothing else, it's, it's a way to clear your mind a little bit. Yeah, I think so. So, um, so my post is maybe a little more relevant to our discussion last week, uh, but on on the website Fusion, which I know nothing about except that somebody gave me this link, I think it was you, it was uh, a link to a post entitled, Robots are starting to break the law and nobody knows what to do about it. And so this is an art project, although this is, this is one of those art projects that you're kind of like, is this really an art project or somebody just thought they were going to do something clever. Um, somebody set up a bot to purchase random things on the darknet. The darknet being, in this case, the websites that you can only access by using the anonymous Tor browser. And among the things it purchased was drugs. And then they were put on display. And so the question was, what kind of an intent could be here? Who's responsible for purchasing the illegal items um, and what can be done about it. It turns out this is totally on the up and up in Switzerland, probably because it has a law that protects art from rules about, you know, illegal drugs and things. You can, if you put heroin on the wall and call it art, apparently you can buy the heroin. So, um, so they did this art project and they displayed it. And then recently there was an update where essentially the bot was arrested. That's um, so amazing. <laughs> which I think is great. So yeah, so the day after the, exhi- the exhibit closed, um, the prosecutor or the police showed up and seized and all of the work, um, including the drugs, obviously. Uh, and so it's interesting because the, the seizure seems to violate Swiss law. But at the same time, it may also be the most expedient way to deal with a robot breaking the law when it's when the law has no other way to deal with it. So it's kind of it's really well. The criminal justice system tried to punish or rehabilitate that software program. (laughs) That's how do you incarcerate a bot, which is not a physical robot, but a a software bot. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, my take on it is like you know I disclaimer here I practiced criminal law briefly for a couple of years under the tutelage of, well, a couple of good criminal defense lawyers, but um, but I have no expertise in this area. But I think it's it feels to me akin to the whole firing a rifle at a building without caring whether or not it hits somebody. It feels very reckless to me. Um, giving a bot a bank account and throwing it at the dark net seems to be basically the same sort of thing. I think you're being pretty reckless with regard to purchasing drugs, especially since you know, given what's on the internet, you're likely to get child porn or illegal drugs. I'm just curious if this if this piece of software is going to be able to plea down to community service. <laughs> and and what would that look like? I've no, maybe the prosecutor's office has hackers that can reprogram the bot. I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, can turn it into <laughs> software for good. <laughs> but I love this. I love stuff like this. I. I'm not even sure it's that significant or even all that interesting below the surface, but I I could read about this stuff all day. So It's very possible that the two things we just talked about have zero practical value for anyone listening to this podcast. Almost certainly. Yes. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad we've done our job. But here's something that has a lot of practical value. For today's interview, I'm talking to Brian Tannebaum, a certified curmudgeon and author of The Practice, Brutal Truths About Lawyers and Lawyering. 
It's a great interview and it's starting now. Brian, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Uh, so I don't like to give people's bios for them, in part because I hate it when people start telling me where I went to school and things. Um, so why don't you give us your own bio? I, I think I gave the brief overview, but you tell us what you want people to know about your practice. Well, I was born and raised uh, in Miami, lived here my entire life, except uh, when I went to school. I went to college at the University of South Florida. I went to law school at Stetson and graduated, came back to Miami, and uh, became an assistant public defender for a few years, left, uh, went to work for a very small law firm, two people, for uh, almost a year, uh, and then I became of counsel to uh, another law firm for five years, uh, and then started my own practice uh, with a partner who I still have, and that uh, has been almost 13 years. Uh, I started just doing criminal defense, and then I expanded into representing lawyers in discipline and malpractice cases, which is now the bulk of the cases that I handle. And about 2005, I believe, I started writing. I've always enjoyed writing. I started a criminal defense blog, and then I started a, an ethics blog because nobody was writing about Florida ethics at the time. And uh, then Above the Law asked me if I would uh, write a column for them called The Practice. And I did that for a couple of years, and the ABA came and asked me if I would write a book. And uh, so that was a two-year project that began in 2012. And the book, titled The Practice, was released on Columbus Day of this year. So what's next? Are you going to, in the blogging world anyway, are you going back to Above the Law? Are you going to start writing at my law license again or, or pick it back up, I guess? Well, about every other day I think of something I want to write, and then I always go back and say, well, am I going to keep writing? And for right now, as the book just came out and I'm trying to get the book out there, uh, I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to do, but there's no doubt that at some point I'm going to go back to writing. I just haven't decided uh, in which form I'm going to do it. Awesome. Um, so we're here to talk about your book, but something just popped into my head that I want to ask you about uh, before we do. Because I, one of the things I want to do with these podcasts is sort of the same thing I did when I went solo, is I was sitting down with every lawyer that I could, and I was trying to figure out how to have a law practice, how to do this thing, right? And so some of the questions I was really curious about were things like, you know, if you have a partnership, how is it structured? And, um, you know, how do you get your clients and things like that? And so uh, I guess for whatever reason, I, I've, I've always thought of you as a solo, even though on reflection, I know that you have a partner. How is that set up? Are you guys, uh, are you guys, do you guys split the, the revenues? Do you, um, do you eat what you kill and your part? I mean, why are you partners and what does that get for you and how do you structure that? Well, the reason I took on a partner is because I wanted to have a law firm that did more than just criminal defense and representation of lawyers. And my partner does neither of those. He represents people who have issues before local governments, code enforcement, property tax, real estate issues, uh, and he does some civil litigation related to that. So I wanted to be able to, you know, network with his clients, and he wanted to be able to meet some of my clients, and we do have mutual clients, and basically what we did was we did a 50-50 split of all expenses that uh, came in the door in terms of rent and, and office staff and, and things like that. 
And from time to time, we have revenue sharing depending on, you know, what he's doing and what I'm doing. But we do not have a formal agreement, which I find, uh, you know, although I always tell lawyers get it in writing, I find that a lot of partnerships are more successful when there's not a formal agreement because the, the biggest thing that will split two people up, whether they're married or they're partners, is money. Uh, so we have a very loose arrangement when it comes to finances. And, you know, we talk all the time and we see how the firm is doing and we determine uh, how money is going to be spent and split. Uh, but there is no formal agreement. You know, everyone gets, you know, 50% of everybody else's cases because sometimes that's what causes problems in law firms. So do you, do you just sit down every month and divvy it up or do you, I mean, how do you decide? Well, I mean, we're down the hall from each other. So we sit down, you know, from time to time, cases come in, clients come in and we determine, you know, how did the case come in? How did the client come in? And, and how are we going to handle this particular case? There may be a certain case that, you know, my partner wants nothing to do with for whatever reason, the same with me. Uh, and it all just seems to work out. You know, the most important thing between us is that all the expenses are paid and the staff is paid and, uh, other than that, we kind of work things out between ourselves. Gotcha. Uh, and you mentioned staff. Do you have staff? Yes. How yes. We, we, we have staff, and uh, sometimes I walk down the hall and I say, who is that person? Oh, they've been working here for, they've been working here for three months. Um, yes, we have a receptionist. We have assistants. We have people that process uh, matters, you know, when they first come in the door. So uh, I think right now there's probably five people running around the office. Plus, I have another lawyer in the office who uh, it has a shared space arrangement, but basically just works with me, uh, and I give this lawyer cases that I you know, generally may not have time to handle or better suited for this lawyer because I'm just doing other things at the time. So it's kind of a loose associate situation. Oh, interesting. And then I assume you've got maybe that lawyer, but also your partner. You guys can step in and cover hearings every once in a while, or you can take vacations and things like that. Well, actually, because our practices are so different, we, we generally don't do that because his world is, is much different than mine. But that's why I have another lawyer in the office who uh, does some criminal defense and does some uh, bar defense. And so that lawyer is able to, to step in for me uh, when, I'm able, when I'm on vacation or doing other things. I was. I started out my practice working for two different criminal defense attorneys, and I, I think that was sort of the role I filled for them. And my job was essentially to show up at hearings and ask for continuances until the the real lawyer could show up. <laughs> exactly. I I, I I played that role young in my career. So I okay. So I want to talk about your book, and uh, but thank you for that because I I just think it's fascinating to learn about how successful lawyers are practicing, you know, and it's and it's those little things that I was obsessed with at the beginning that didn't necessarily make a difference to my practice, you know, ten years down the road. But um, but I, I love hearing about how other lawyers do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about your book and. The first piece of the book that I want to talk about is right up at the beginning. Um, So if you're reading Brian's book, you don't even have to read very far. Um, This really resonated with me is your code of ethics. And it resonated with me for a couple of reasons. One, um, because a, a, my torts professor who was very special to me said the same thing on our last day of class. And this is, you know, this is one of those law school moments where everybody's weeping and standing ovation and everything, of course. But, um, but it was that really stuck with me. Um, and then when I read yours, um, it really resonated with me because so many lawyers that I learned from early on told me the same thing. And I, I guess I'm, 
I kind of want to just read the whole thing, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> so I'd like to talk to you about, how, I mean, how did you come up with your code of ethics and who told you to have one and where does this come from for you? Well, you know, it, it just came from experience and just realizing that certain lawyers operate in a way that I don't want to operate. Uh, the other day I was, I was at the Philadelphia bar and I was talking and somebody raised their hand and they said, what do you do about lawyers who set unreasonable deadlines? And I said, well, you know, I respond that lawyers don't set deadlines. Uh, judges set deadlines and statutes make deadlines. If a lawyer wants to talk to me about a date, that's a different situation, but I don't operate from you're going to do this by this date. I mean, if you feel as, as opposing counsel or, or potential opposing counsel, you have to do something by a certain date, that's fine, but you're contacting me for the purpose, I assume, of trying to resolve a matter, so I'm not going to tolerate the, you know, this is what you're going to do, and I don't care that your kid has a soccer game or you're going on vacation or you have, you know, 20 other clients that are waiting for, you know, you to file things on, on their behalf. So I sat down one day and I just said, you know, this is the way that I practice law. Uh, this is the way that I'm going to operate with, with other lawyers and other people in the system, and it works for me. And I remember at some point, I, I think what may have been the specific um, you know, time that made me do it was I'd taken on a criminal case and I got a letter from a prosecutor and it said, this is how I practice as a prosecutor. If you want to set depositions, this is what we're going to do. And I, at first I was offended by it and I thought, I don't, I don't need to be told how to practice criminal law. And then I read it again and I thought, oh, he's just basically saying, look, th this is how I work and I just want to make things easy. This is when I'm in the office. This is how to email me. This is, you know, and I thought, well, maybe every lawyer should have a personal code of conduct, ethics, whatever they want to be, whatever they want to do. Uh, I don't, you know, send it out to people. Of course, now it's in the book, but it is something that I abide by and it's, it's worked for me. You know, I bet you don't send it out, but I bet there are plenty of times where you tell people, here's something you need to know about dealing with me. Right? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I do it all the time. I mean, when I, you know, and I tell the story in the book, I, I get an email, you know, the typical lawyer email that has the words immediately and right now, and, and I, the, the famous story of this very lengthy email I got from a lawyer I'd never talked to before, and he said, you know, you're going to do this and you're going to do this, and I wrote back to him one sentence, uh, was this email meant for me? <laughs> and I, I never heard from him again. I heard from another lawyer in the office, uh, you know, a couple weeks or a month later, and, and we resolved everything. And, and so I always, you know, tell people, even when you're arguing with somebody, if somebody's going up, you go down. If somebody's yelling, you get quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, don't ever try to win the battle of who's going to be the loudest, who's going to threaten the most. Um, and so, yes, I have been on the phone with lawyers uh, who have started on that path, and I've said flat out, look, you know, I'm not going to let you talk to me this way. It's just not the way, you know, if I need to hang up the phone, that's fine if you want to call me back. But I think a lot of lawyers, especially young associates in law firms, are either taught differently uh, how, to, how to handle these situations, or they just don't know, and it just makes their life miserable. I mean, you know, lawyers generally, you know, that I talk to, it's not the clients, it's, it's the lawyers that are making their lives miserable. Do you think uh, having a personal code um, of law practice of ethics is a common thing, or do you think that, that you're, by actually sitting down and thinking about it, that makes you pretty unique? 
Well, it, it, to me, it's like goals. I think most people don't write down their goals. They may think of, you know, the car they want, the house they want, the, the life they want, but they don't sit down and say, you know, in the next 12 months, here are the five things I'd like to accomplish. I, I think it's the same thing with the code of ethics. I think most lawyers, their code of ethics are the bar rules, which, you know, as most experienced lawyers will say, um, you know, that's the floor, not the ceiling. The, the bar rules are the minimum standards by which you need to act. My personal code of ethics is the way that I relate uh, to other people, other lawyers, and I, I, would, I would venture to say most lawyers don't have their own personal code. They have their ways of doing things, but they've never sat down and written it down. And this is, a, this is lowercase ethics, right? This is not ethics as in the rules of ethics. Right. I mean, I always tell lawyers when I'm talking about ethics, you know, th there are things you can do and there are things you should do. Um, you know, people call me all the time for ethics advice and they'll, they'll give me the scenario and they'll say, and I read the rule and the rule says this, and I'll ask them a question like, yeah, but do you really want to do that? I mean, do you really want to have that experience as a lawyer? Do you realize like what may happen if you do it? And, and so I, I don't know that there's a ton of thought that goes beyond, well, the rule says I can do this. Um, obviously, there's certain rules that you know you have to abide by. Attorney-client privilege. There's just, there's very little exception to that. But in terms of, you know, other rules, I I don't like it when lawyers say, well, the rule says I can do this. Well, yeah, the rule says you can do that. But you know, the, the judges in the courthouse are going to start talking, uh, and then that's going to be a problem for you. You know, I I think that's actually a really key point, and and it goes beyond just the rules of professional responsibility, right? The um, the, when you're when you're litigating, sometimes people will just get so laser focused on what the law says that they'll forget about solving problems. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's interesting you say that because the call that I get all the time, and I feel like I should just you know tell people to hit three when they ask me, is the civil lawyers who call me, and they'll say that they're in the middle of a very contentious case, and this lawyer did the following, and they want to know. Is that a violation of the bar rules? And more often than not, my answer is yes, um, it is. But where are we going with this? I mean, the, the bar is not interested in, in mediating your civil case. Uh, and is there another way for you to possibly resolve the situation? I mean, I remember, you know, once in court where a prosecutor did something completely unethical. And I could tell it was a very young prosecutor. And I, and I pulled the prosecutor aside. And I explained to this prosecutor what this prosecutor had just done and you know I still keep in touch with this prosecutor years later because she was not aware of the import of what she was doing she was just you know someone told her here this is what you do and I pulled her aside and said you really shouldn't have done that because you know the judge didn't appreciate it and it was wrong and and so I, I don't think a lot of lawyers go beyond the ethics rules they like you say they focus on the law and the rules and they don't look around and say, what kind of reputation am I, you know, cultivating for myself? Do you have a, do you have some stock advice on making Rule 11 threats? I, I was in a very contentious practice area where I felt like lawyers just threw that around really carelessly. Um, and I, I, I've always just been curious about how, uh, how and when should you actually threaten to file a Rule 11 motion against somebody because you think they've done something wrong? Well, it's like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, Rule 11 sanctions 
you know, they're available when, when there's something that should be sanctioned. But the first thing you have to determine is, you know, who's your judge? Uh, is this a judge who routinely grants Rule 11 sanctions? I mean, I would venture to say most judges don't like to grant sanctions. And, and, and although I'm seeing more sanctions being granted, um, it's still not at a stage where the first thing you should do is file the motion. I think the first thing you should do is think about it. And I've been involved in cases where I've been hired to, you know, evaluate sanctions. And, and I say, well, you know, this is kind of a waste of time here. This, you know, yes, this happened, but I really don't think this judge is going gonna, is gonna to be moved by why you're moving for sanctions. And then what are you going to do it again and do it again? I, I think Rule 11 sanctions, and I'm probably at a losing battle on this, should be saved for the most egregious uh, conduct. And, and when it might actually get your client what they need or want out of the case, maybe, right? Right. I mean, that's a whole other thing about, you know, lawyers who are, you know, churning files and, and billing hours without really being honest with the client about what the end game is. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough as a lawyer when I was very young, I had this mentor, and he used to always say this really stupid thing to me when I wanted to fight, and he would say, what are you trying to accomplish here? And the more I would think about it, the angrier I would get, and the more I would realize that, you know, I'm wasting my time, my client's money, and, and let's just close this thing out. So, um, but I think that lawyers are not as gun-shy as they used to about doing things. It's much less of a gentleman's, and I don't mean that in a sexist way, but a gentleman's profession anymore. And I think more and more lawyers are just willing to file whatever they have to file uh, to, to accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish. So one last thing from your code of ethics, which I think is, um, I, you know, it comes up all the time when I talk to new lawyers, is referral fees. Why don't you mm -hmm. take them? You know, I'm a relationship guy, and I have this conversation all the time. I know lawyers who basically make a living off of referring cases. And if I were to write down every case I've ever referred to a lawyer and take 25% of that fee, I, I would probably be very upset at this point. But I have just found that, you know, it's a giving type situation and, and uh, you know, if, if I'm giving you a case, I'm doing it because I trust you and I think you're going to do a good job for the client. And, and it's just always come back to me. It's always come back to me in spades. It's someone who I sent a little case to has referred me two or three cases. Um, and, and I don't, I don't like the whole referral fee. Well, I'm going to refer you this case because you're going to give me a referral fee. To me, then you're not referring the case to the most experienced, competent lawyer you can. You're just referring it to a, a lawyer because you're going to get a check. And, and I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem when I refer a personal injury case and that lawyer you know, feels an obligation to send me a check for you know, whatever it is for you know, helping out and introducing the client and you know, briefing him on the case and things like that. But it's just not a game that I play where I'm referring cases to people for the purpose of getting a referral fee. And I just, I don't, I don't take them. I'm happy to get a bottle of wine. I'm happy to get a thank you. Um, but I'm just not interested in the check. You know, I, I, I don't know if this is the national thing or not, but in Minnesota, you know, it's, you, it's not really a referral fee. It's really a co-counsel fee for your percentage Correct. of the work. And um, right. the, one of the scariest conversations I ever had as a lawyer was when one of my clients had a class action claim and we talked to a class action firm about it and they were revving up to do some national litigation with her um, and they wanted 
you know, they wanted to pay me a referral fee by sticking my uh, my name on it. And uh, boy, that I mean, it just wound up really quickly into um, there were going to be tons of different lawyers and law firms doing stuff all over the country. And my name was going to be on the pleadings along with theirs. But don't worry, you're not going to have to do any of the work. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. And, and we have the same thing in Florida. We have what's called a partial participation fee where you can get up to 25% for the for, you know, working on the case. Now, what that is, is up to, you know, interpretation. And I venture to say most lawyers who refer a case never touch it because, you know, PI lawyers don't want real estate lawyers sitting at counsel table trying their cases. Um, but there are specific rules on that, and, and that has come up in discipline cases where either the client did not know that somebody was getting a referral fee uh, or the bar questioned whether the lawyer actually did anything in the case because now there's a fee issue in terms of who got what, uh, and it's been disclosed, but the referral lawyer got a ton of money and basically made a phone call. So, you know, you do have to be careful about that kind of a practice. Well, and I think, uh, I guess the scarier part for me is I don't want other lawyers determining whether or not I've done something wrong because I've never even seen what they're filing. Um, that, that's correct. Yeah, that, that's another problem. Like you said, your name goes on it and something uh, is questioned, you know, you're going to get hauled in and uh, put under oath. It's still your case. It's still your client. And All right. So, uh, so one of the sort of themes that I think is underneath your book and, and underneath your writing and, and your, your, your thinking is um, what I have called a tripod, uh, I think, is the balance between being a good lawyer and serving your clients, um, your marketing efforts, and the fact that you're owning and running a business. Um, and I think balancing those is really hard. Younger, newer lawyers seem to get overly focused on business and technology or marketing um, that doesn't mean they're not also learning how to be a lawyer, but uh, you know, what do you, how do you, what do you think about balancing those sort of three legs of the stool? Well, it's it's really the basis of of what I'm talking about in the book, and my real concern right now. And I've been out for 20 years, and when I started, law was already a business, and and you can argue that it, it always has been a business, but I was in the LA law time when people were going to law school because they you know saw nice buildings and furniture and they thought oh I can make a lot of money it was not a sense of you know civil justice or criminal justice it was more like okay this is a ticket to uh, something other than an MBA where I can make a lot of money and then I think with the advent of technology um, I think you know when people ask me what is the main reason you think civility in law has decreased I say it's technology because it used to be you know, you would send a letter to somebody and you would wait for, you know, 10 days or two weeks for a response. Then came the fax machine. Then came the email at 4.30 saying, I need a response by 9.30 the next morning uh, without any consideration of what you're doing. So technology, and I think even people who, who are, you know, embedded with technology as a profession uh, will say that technology is a blessing and a curse. I, when people read what I write, some of them will say to me, you know, Brian Tannenbaum hates the Internet. He hates technology. He hates social media. Um, the thinkers who read about me understand that, no, I don't. I just think that it has its place. And I, I think and I talk about this. Every lawyer should have a profile on every social media interface, uh, Facebook and Twitter and, you know, some of the other lesser-known ones. You know, LinkedIn is, is, has its own issues and, and all the other ones. But I, I think every lawyer should be on that. But 
I think at its core that the law is a profession. And people say, well, no, it's a business. I think it's both, but it's first a profession. It's very different than an unlicensed business in the sense that there are, like we talked about at the beginning, these rules of ethics. So, you know, the balance is difficult, and I think the problem today is that young lawyers are coming out and being told, this is the way you have to build a practice. You've got to be on the Internet. Everything has to be about technology. And, and my retort to that is, listen, all this stuff is very important. Like I said, you should be on the Internet. You should understand how technology works for both marketing and discovery and, and all the other issues that come into practice. But at its core, this is still a handshake, relationship, clients need help, type of profession. And so I, I think what lawyers need to do is really evaluate what kind of lawyer they want to be. And that's, that's the first thing I write about in the book. And I, when I talk to people about that, I often get this like head shaking, like, yeah, nobody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> like, what, you know, what do you mean what kind of lawyer do I want to be? I want to be the kind of lawyer that makes money. Well, th there are lawyers that make money, and there are lawyers that are perennially broke, and it, it doesn't have anything to do with how well they're good at technology. I mean, I talk to lawyers who are all in on the SEO, you know, search engine optimization game, and you talk to them, and they're, oh, things are terrible. I only got, you know, X amount of hits on the Internet. <laughs> and, you know, well, when's the, last, when's the last networking event you went to? I don't go to those things. I, you know, and, and so when you talk about balance, my, my overt concern with lawyers is that they not focus on one thing. I've never thought there was one way to build a law practice. And I don't want anybody out there saying, you know, if you don't have this device, if you don't have this, you know, experience on the Internet, uh, you're going to die. Your practice is never going to be successful. I, ju I just don't believe that that's ever going to be the case, and that's what I'm trying to tell lawyers, that all this stuff is great, but there's a whole other world out there that's based on people and relationships. You know, when I, when I started writing Lawyerist back when it was solo small tech, I, uh, I had a very black and white view of things. I felt like there was a right way and a wrong way to do a lot of stuff. And, uh, and, and maybe that's just what experience is, is you stop seeing things in black and white and you start realizing that there's a lot more nuance to things. Um, but that is exactly the conclusion that I came to, is that there's, there, there are a lot of different ways to do things. And maybe, maybe call it talking about lawyering and business and marketing as a balance is, is not quite right because first be a good lawyer. I mean, that, that is unquestionably number one on the list. You, first, you have to be a good lawyer. Yeah, and I think, listen, we have plenty of consumers out there that don't pay attention, and they will hire a lawyer based on something they heard or something they read. Um, you know, the kind of clients that, you know, I look for is, is a very small group of lawyers. These are the ki uh, a very small group of clients. My clients are the people that when something happens to them, the first thing they do is call somebody they know. And that person gives them a name, and then they go to the Internet. And, and I started seeing this before the Internet became popular when lawyers started sending out uh, letters to people who had been arrested or had had code enforcement issues or these kinds of things. And I would have clients come in and say, you know, I just want to let you know I would never hire a lawyer that sent me anything in the mail. And I thought, oh, really? Because that, that's not what I'm being told. Like all these marketing <laughs> people are telling me, how come you don't send out direct mail? You get, you get to talk to the people who actually need a lawyer. And I said, I don't know. I think people may like, get kind of weirded out by that. And then I started hearing it. 
And I, I, I confirmed that, yes, there is still a group of clientele out there who are offended by lawyers who overmarket themselves and are suspicious of it. And so th- while there is plenty of clients for those lawyers and they're not doing anything unethical, there are still the clients out there that say, look, money's not an issue for me or I can spend a little bit more than the, you know, what they're advertising. Uh, I want to go sit down in an office with a lawyer and talk to somebody who's been referred by somebody who I respect. You know, that's interesting because I, I was trying to articulate this to my, my wife, who's also a lawyer. Um, I was trying to articulate this to her uh, last summer about, um, you know, you talk in your book, and I think this is really important, is that you can't create a reputation. You can create a brand, but if it doesn't work, with you, if your reputation is different, it's going to bite you in the ass. But um, but people don't think about the fact that your your marketing doesn't just brand you in a markety sense. It, it tells people what kind of a lawyer you are. And if you're the kind of lawyer who has billboards around town and slogans and catchphrases and car crashes in your PI lawyer commercials, you're a certain type of lawyer. And like for me... I don't refer to those lawyers, right? I don't refer clients to those lawyers because that, to me, brands them as a cheap volume practice, churn and burn type of a law firm. And I, I may be wrong about that, but that's the reputation that I get from their marketing. Right, and, and understand that even in that world, there are some good lawyers who practice like that, but then you have to determine, you know, is that the kind of practice you want to have? I always tell people, listen, I could have triple the amount of clients that I have right now. I just go hire an SEO guy and say, look, just pound my name everywhere. I would start getting a lot more calls. Guaranteed, I would start getting a lot more calls, but they would all be mostly the same type of call, which is, I found you on the Internet. How much do you charge? Click. Um, call the next guy. So, yeah, I'd have more clients, but my, my, you know, I've seen lawyers who have been disbarred who have had these types of practices because they can't keep up with the volume. And if you can, that's great, but understand that you're going to be dealing generally with a different type of client. And, and I keep going back. We need lawyers who can provide low-cost legal services to people who need lawyers. I'm not bemoaning that at all, but I'm saying to the individual lawyer, if that's the practice you want, here's how you build that practice. If you don't want that kind of practice, this is how you build it. And my concern is that there's so much marketing out there that's not being, you know, taught to lawyers that, look, there's five different ways to build a law practice. The first thing you have to decide is what type of practice do you want to have? Do you want to be working seven days a week and having, you know, 15 people in your lobby after lunch every single day? Great. You got to hire the staff. You got to be competent. If you want to have one client a week who pays you a lot of money, well, that's a different type of practice. You need to get into the minds um, and, and rooms where those types of people who refer those cases are, and that's a different type of marketing. I think what you're saying is take your mind off the tools and look at the goal, right? I mean, so many lawyers are say, I want to have a practice where I get to use my iPad, <laughs> but that's the wrong way to go about it. The right way to go about it is this is the type of lawyer I want to be. This is the type of, this is what I want my practice to look like. And maybe an iPad will help me get there, maybe not, but probably it won't have anything to do with it. Right, right. It's the cart before the horse, and and I think you're you're right about what you're saying. Is that something gets thrown into a lawyer's face? You need this, and the lawyer's like, okay, well, I'm going to go buy it. And then the lawyer gets it, and well, what am I going to do with this? You know, and 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 I think that's part of the 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 wrong message that's being sent to lawyers today, which is, you know, you need to do this, and if you don't do this, you're not going to have a successful law practice. 
uh, I think that's that's a real disservice that's being done to lawyers. You know, I uh, it, it's interesting because as we're talking about, you know, technology, marketing, business uh, versus being a good lawyer and, and how you balance those things, um, the, the lawyers that I worked for um, were good lawyers. I, I second chaired trials with them. They were they they taught me how to write. Um, they're they're just they're very very good lawyers, um, but really bad at business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like and so the problem that they had, and, and one of them is disbarred now, not suspended, but actually disbarred um, because he he wasn't managing his business. So even even if the business piece of things is not as important as being a good lawyer, you can't just be a good lawyer either. You also have to get clients, obviously, or you won't be a good lawyer or at all. You won't be a lawyer. Um, and you have to pay attention to the business. If you don't know how to manage your trust counts and keep track of your clients' funds, you're also going to end up in trouble. Well, I, of course. And that's, you know, the second part is the ethics part, which is, you know, keeping track of your business. But the first part is the marketing. And, you know, I tell people all the time, some of the best lawyers in this country work for the government. Mm-hmm. And they work for the government for a couple of reasons. Um, they like working for the government. Um, you know, they have stability working for the government. Um, and they know that they could never go out there and market themselves. And, I, you know, you've probably seen it. I've seen it, too. I've seen longtime government lawyers go out into the private sector. And a year later, they're back with the government. Um, because they're not set up to market. And you're right. I mean, you can be the greatest lawyer on the planet. If you have no clients, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I, I've always believed in marketing. I mean, I was going to bar events, you know, the second day I, you know, had my license. And um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of marketing. I'm just not a big fan of there's only one way to market your practice. So since, since we're sort of moving uh, to marketing here, what why do you think it is so hard for lawyers to get their heads around the fact that marketing online is not completely different and the same ethics rules apply? Well, there's nobody standing in front of them. And, you know, when I talk about marketing, I always give this analogy and I put a little PowerPoint thing up of a, of a woman with a megaphone. And I say, this is what we look like on the internet as lawyers. Every single time something new comes out on the internet, the first thing you see is how lawyers can profit from this website or this social media site. And I say, you know, would you ever walk into a room, you know, I'm talking to a conference of 100 lawyers, and I say, would any of you ever walk in here and say, hire me? Uh, Or, hey, someone just had a car accident down the street and three people died. Uh, you know, and they all start laughing. And of course, you know, you walk up, hi, how are you? You know, where are you from? You you start the slow conversation. All of a sudden you have something in common. You guys like bicycling or sports or whatever it is. Take cards, have lunch. That's a relationship. But on the internet, everything is so quick and nobody's there and nobody, you don't even know who's listening to you. So you start this automated feed of things that somebody told you was relevant. Um, you know, I tell people all the time about my internet presence. You know, I, I rarely talk about what I do, but there's no doubt that every single person who reads my feed, who, who is interested in anything I'm saying, knows what I do for a living. Um, and, and so there's that marketing going on, but it's very subtle. I'm not there tweeting out links to lawyers getting disbarred and people getting arrested. And, you know, to me, that stuff just doesn't mean anything. And so I think that 
lawyers are told, look, it's different on the Internet. And I always tell lawyers, nothing's different about the Internet. The Internet is an online cocktail party. Thank you. That's all it is. Somebody needs to say that. (laughs) Yeah, and and if you come across as, you know, listen, Sam, you've been in the cocktail party where you walk up to a guy and he says, hi, my name is Joe. If you ever need life insurance, here's my card. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're running away. You're like, okay, I'm done with this guy. Like, yeah. you know, we're never going to talk again. I try to throw. Uh, I try to throw Joe's card away. Like I'm trying not to let him see it, but I really do want him to see me throw it away. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so I, I think that that is one of the biggest misnomers about marketing is that something is different about being online than being offline. And I think if more lawyers would treat their online presence as if they were at a cocktail party, it would be a lot better. I'm just, I get so unnerved every time something comes out. And within five minutes, I see all the writings about how lawyers can profit from it. You don't see it, you don't see it from any other profession. Right. But lawyers. No, I, so it, that's my concern. It's kind of the, it's the quid pro quo approach to networking run amok, right? It's <laughs> instead of just being real and making friends, trying to have relationships not in the marketer networky coach type of relationships but actually hanging out with people that you could talk to and have a conversation with and be friends with right Um, and 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 the problem is is that this line has been drawn between face-to-face networking and online networking and to me I, i don't see any difference yeah, I don't, I don't either, and I, and it, it kind of amazes me when I see lawyers going so far over the line. When as soon as you give them an analogy to not online marketing, they would see it. And what makes it okay that um, that they're misrepresenting themselves on their websites, and they just don't seem to get it until you're until you give them an analogy. And I, I've always just kind of wondered what's the why can't they get their heads around that? But it's, you're right, it's just not different. And lawyers need to stop thinking about it as a crazy different thing. Right, exactly. Which is, I, I guess, uh, I'll segue into uh, one of my pet things here, is that lawyers need to know about technology, not because they need to use it for marketing, or at least not only because they might want to use it for marketing, but because technology is a thing that exists that everyone in the world uses, including your clients, and if you don't want to make a fool out of yourself and you don't want to violate the rules, you have to stop thinking about it as, you know, a VCR that's a black box that you don't understand. You have to actually understand it. Right. Well, and, and the biggest example of that, and for anyone that practices in the federal courts, is that everything now is e-filing. And when you e-file in federal court, it has to be PDF. Um, and I remember when e-filing became mandatory and, you know, all the 55, 60-year-old you know, white guys were like, I don't have an email address, uh, you know, or I don't, I don't have, I don't have Acrobat. I, I don't know how to use it. I'm not going to do it. And the federal courts basically said, well, then, you know, you can go practice in state court because, you know, that's the way we're going to handle things here. So that was kind of, to me, uh, the beginning of, listen, if you don't understand how computers work uh, and word processing systems work, you're going to have a hard time. And the other side of it is, social media when it comes to investigating a case. I mean, look, somebody sends me a resume, first thing I do, I go to Google, I go to Facebook, I go to Twitter, I look to see, you know, if they're around and what their presence is online. Uh, and, and that's an important factor. And I investigate cases that way. I investigate people. Everybody does it. There's nothing wrong with it uh, unless you're 
friending someone for the purpose of trying to get information. That's a whole other issue. But I, I believe that lawyers need to know about technology because everybody else is learning about it, and it helps, A, understand how uh, you know people operate when they're not in your presence, and B, courts are requiring that you know how to do certain things. Well, and it's functional stuff, too, like how do you get a tweet into evidence? Because you're going to need to if you try cases. Right, and how do you subpoena the cell phone records of somebody who, you know, is claiming they've never called your client before? Um, so all all that stuff is important, and I, you know, I, I'm right with those people. You know, the oh, I don't need to know about all the. No, you do need to know because that's how that's how crimes get solved. That's how investigation. Everything is taking place on social media. I mean, there's not an organization I think in the world that's not on Twitter. Um, and, you know, they are tweeting out information, and you need to be aware of those kinds of things for, for a lot of different purposes. So I, I don't fall into that category of, you know, I don't need to know how any of this stuff works, because eventually it's going to get more prominent in legal practice. Uh, you know, look like in Florida now, it's all e-filing in state court. Yeah, um, we, we just switched over in Minnesota, too. You know, and, and we're on it, and we're fine, and we know how to do it, and everything's great, and it's made our lives a lot easier. Um, but, you know, the electronic age is, is not receding, and uh, so I, I do think that lawyer, you know, I hear that phrase, lawyers have an obligation to understand technology. I, I agree. Okay. I agree. Okay. Brian, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about today? No, I mean, the last thing I just wanted to mention about the book, you know, at the end I talk about uh, if you're not happy. Um, because I believe that that's something that's been lost in the practice. I think lawyers kind of do their thing and, and don't sit back and say, you know, I, I really don't like this. This is not, I thought it was going to be something else. It's not, but I have the golden handcuffs and I have the school loans and I, I just have to, I got to keep, you know, churning out these files. And uh, I want lawyers to be able to think about whether there's other ways out there uh, to make money. I mean, I always say on the Fords, 400 list there's only one lawyer the other 399 are doing something else so you know that's the, the strongest message that uh, law is not the only way uh, to make a living and if you're not happy uh, there's things to think about and other things you can do a law degree doesn't mean you have to be a practicing lawyer uh, there's other things that you can do in business and uh, life you know uh, I've always said that law is a really hard way to make a decent living and uh it's also really hard, though, to get your head around not being a lawyer anymore. My practice is infinitesimally small these days. Um, I, I hesitate to even claim to have one. But I still identify myself as a lawyer, and it's been really hard for me to... When I was considering even just reducing my, my, the law practice piece of what I do to focus more on lawyerist, I had a really hard time letting go of being a lawyer. And... So although I know a lot of unhappy lawyers, I meet tons of unhappy lawyers, um, I think it's so hard for lawyers to let go and think of doing anything besides law practice. And here I am. I, I haven't left law practice. I'm just writing about it instead of doing it now. So Well, I'll tell you this because, you know, some of my clients have to leave the law uh, involuntarily. And the word that I use is identity. Um, there's something about being a lawyer that is an identity with people and they cannot get rid of it. Uh, and maybe it's easy for me to say, because I happen to like what I do, uh, that, you know, I could 
I could see myself doing something else. I mean, if someone came to me with an opportunity that I thought was interesting, that was non-law related, um, I'm not that attached to it that I couldn't imagine doing something else. But I have had some very emotional conversations with lawyers uh, who just can't imagine that there's any way else in the world that they could, could make a dollar. And I think that that's a problem. Yeah, I, it's interesting. And I, and I don't know, I, how do you help lawyers get over that hump? Well, I talk to them about some of my clients. I have some clients who have been disbarred, who have become very successful in business, and I try to give them those examples. Uh, and I, I try to remind them, you know, look, you're a smart person. You went to school for a long time. Uh, they didn't teach you in law school how to practice law. They taught you about how the world works in terms of property and contracts and things like that. And I, I will tell you, though, it is really difficult um, you know, because I don't come from that world. I mean, I'm sitting there as a, as a lawyer who enjoys the practice and has a good practice telling someone who's about to leave, oh, everything's going to be fine, don't worry about it. You could be happier. And they can't imagine because they've just been in this world for so long, 10, 15, 20, 30, even more years, that they have no concept of doing anything else. And I think it's also an ego thing. I mean, you have a license, you have a reputation, you get disbarred. Um, you know, it hurts. And, you know, I can't take that away from, from these people. But for those younger lawyers who are, you know, four or five years into it thinking this is not what I wanted, I would hope they would seriously consider what else is out there. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess that's the bottom line, right? If, if you are doing law practice and it makes you miserable, and you believe that you have narrowed the source of your misery down to being a lawyer and practicing law, then you should probably put a pretty short timeline on doing something else right that's just bottom line yeah and 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 as people say to me it's easy for you to say (laughs) um these these types of people just have no concept and that's not a criticism of what else may be out there that could make them happier well and i you know those opportunities don't crop up until you start looking for them or making them happen um i i was never planning to go solo until um i basically didn't really have a choice uh, and then I went solo, loved being solo, um, and it and it worked. But I couldn't have imagined doing it before that. I never intended lawyers to become a business, but it did. I and I've never intended to switch jobs. It's just the opportunities sort of came up, or I went went and hunted for them and found them. Um, I guess I guess you can't know until you try. And if you sit around saying this is who I am and I can't change it and I'm stuck, then then it won't change. Exactly. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, Brian's book, which is still very new, is The Practice, Brutal Truths About Lawyers and Lawyering. Uh, I've got a review on Lawyerist if you need the link, or you can find it on Amazon or in the ABA bookstore. Um, It's a very good book, especially if you are a young lawyer who's trying to figure out what kind of a lawyer you want to be. So thanks, Brian. Thank you, Sam. This episode of The Lawyerist Podcast is brought to you by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answered the phones for my law practice for a couple of years. And here's the thing. When I was answering the phone, I was often distracted. I might be in the middle of reading a brief that pissed me off from opposing counsel uh, or dealing with something stressful or that I really needed to focus on. And so the phone rings. It's an interruption kind of drives me crazy, and I'm never at my best. That's not the face I wanted to put forward to clients. So when I got Ruby, the the whole thing changed for two reasons. First, because 
the ladies at Ruby are fantastic on the phone. They're cheerful, they're friendly, they're helpful. And what happened is that people would regularly say, wow, I just had such a great experience with your receptionist. And second, because my instructions were that anybody who asked for me by name should be put straight through to me. The way that happens is it's a soft transfer, meaning the first person I hear from is a receptionist from Ruby who says, hi, this is so-and-so from Ruby Receptionists. I've got so-and-so on the phone and they're calling about this. Should I put them through? And so I have the opportunity to say, no, tell them to call this person, tell them I'll call them back later, please take a message, or sure, put them through and I'll talk to them. And just that little bit of buffer meant that by the time I got on the phone, I was prepared for the conversation and I could be in a much better mood. Hiring somebody to pick up my phones and answer my phones for me that is as friendly and professional and helpful as Ruby was one of the best things I did for my practice and for my sanity and productivity. So you should check out Ruby and you've got no reason not to because it's free for 14 days. And if you check them out by going to callruby.com lawyerist, they will also waive the setup fee should you decide to stick with them. And if you sign up for the trial, they will take good care of you, and I'm pretty sure you will want to hire them in the end. So go to callruby.com lawyerist and find out for yourself. All right, you can catch us next week for episode six when we talk with Allison Monahan of The Girl's Guide to Law School about law school success and what it means for legal careers and going solo. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.